Hello and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, where we talk about outer space, business, technology, and policy. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is John B. Harrington, who talks about space education, space business, and his time as a naval aviator and a mission specialist on a space shuttle mission. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. John Harrington, who is a retired United States Naval aviator and former NASA astronaut. Um, and also uh, the first enrolled member of a Native American tribe to fly into space. In addition, uh, he's written Mission to Space, uh, published in 2016 by Chickasaw Press, uh, which is a children's book about um, his time training for the astronaut program and, and going into space. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I've touched on... Um, some of your background in space, but can you elaborate um, how you'd like about your background in space? Oh, yeah, it was uh, two weeks to buy really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, you know, the professional, the high point of my professional career for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to, uh, you know, to train to do something for quite a long period of time and then to go up and, and to do it well, I think was what we all want to do when we, when we have a, a job to accomplish. And I felt like that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that uh, afterwards, I guess 2016, you got a degree in education. Um, can you tell me about that endeavor? Yeah, back in about, uh, I'd say in 2008, I was riding a bicycle across the country, and I pedaled through a town called Lewiston, Idaho, and uh, I spoke to the Nez Perce tribe there in Lapway, and then uh, some friends took me up to uh, University of Idaho, and I met a gentleman up there uh, who was a professor, uh, who is Yaqui Indian, named uh, Dr. Ed Galindo. And I had met Ed years before uh, at the Columbia Memorial. Uh, he had flown a payload with a bunch of Fort Hall uh, Native American students on the Columbia. Mm-hmm. And so he met, I met him at the memorial down at the Kennedy Space Center. And when I met Ed in Idaho, he said, if you're ever interested in getting a Ph.D., come back and talk to me. Well, okay, I didn't live in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> but it just so happened that the woman that was my host I fell in love with and I finished my bike ride and proposed to her in front of the countdown clock at the Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got married, and I moved to Idaho. I called Ed up, and I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> and I started about 2010. I graduated in 2014 with a degree, uh, Ph.D. in education. Mm-hmm. So your degree in education, um, I, I believe that that's to spread space education, but correct me if I'm wrong. What, what's the purpose? What's your goal there? What my goal was is I looked at the factors that motivate and engage specifically Native American kids in math and science. And so I worked with uh, Dr. Galindo, who was my, on my committee, and another professor, um, Aaron Thomas. Uh, they had run a NASA summer program called the NASA Summer of Innovation uh, throughout the Montana, Wyoming, Idaho area. And they had one group of students uh, in southern Idaho on the Duck Valley Reservation, Shoshone Paiute uh, students. Mm-hmm. And I went down and I measured their interest based on a test they'd taken before and after this one-week summer program. And I also did a case study, and I interviewed them about, you know, what about that week did or did not change your interest in math and science. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, a small group of kids, uh, but it was hands-on learning. It was the idea they could build rockets, they could build things with their hands, personalize them. Um, They could work in a group. They could work with their friends and collaborate. So this idea of working together to accomplish a goal at the same time learning something that um, they may not have thought you know, something about before. So uh, it was that idea of hands-on learning. So, and that's how I learn. 
mm-hmm. my entire career, how I did it in college, how I, you know, I did better mm-hmm. when I worked with my friends and, and I found a practical application uh, to what I was learning. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what I did. So um, let's step back in time then when you were first, you know, when you were young, a high school student and beyond. Um, what sort, as, as a member, as Chickasaw, did you either, did you encounter obstacles um, as you moved forward or did you feel, or did you have sort of a, a better situation and you wanted to help out people who, who didn't have as good a situation as you? Well, I think in my case, my own my own obstacle was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I went through high school like pretty much everybody else. I probably could have concentrated more. I could have worked harder. I graduated and then um, uh, went on to college with the notion I had to go to college because mm-hmm. my parents, you know, said you need to go to school if you want to get, you know, be successful in life. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what I wanted to do, and they just kind of left it up to me. Um, I ended up rock climbing my first year, and I didn't study much, and I got kicked out of school my first year for low grades. Mm-hmm. Um, and my interest was outside the classroom, not inside. But luckily, the the my interest, rock climbing, got me a job as a rock climber uh, in the mountains of Colorado uh, working on a survey crew mm-hmm. on a highway. And I was fortunate the guy who worked for me. I, this idea of hands-on learning, because I was hanging off of a cliff with a piece of glass, a prism, and these guys would shoot an infrared beam of light the prism I held. So well, I started asking questions. Well, how's that work? You know, well, light travels at a certain speed, constant velocity. And if you know the time it took to go from one point to the next, you can determine the distance. Hmm. And if you know the angle of that beam of light, you can, you know, essentially it's trigonometry. I was learning trig on the side of a cliff with a bunch of guys that enjoyed what they did. And the guy I worked for convinced me if I wanted to make something myself, I'd better go back to school mm-hmm. because you can't make a living on $4 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and I listened to them, and, and that's what got me back into school. So your focus on um, Native American students, did that? Did you feel that when you were younger, or is that something that came to you as, as you progressed in your career? It came, it came much later. I think what, what happened was, you know, because my interest, you know, is, is since I got to NASA and they said I was the first, you know, member of a federally recognized tribe, that when I went to do my work on my Ph.D., I was working with Native, uh, Native professors, and my interest was if, what motivated me to want to learn, or what mo- motivates other kids to learn? And so, working with you know my background and you know my part of my heritage being Native American, mm-hmm. was that I wanted to work with kids to show them what I did as an astronaut, mm-hmm. how I got to where I was, and then kind of figure out what works for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of the research uh, is on why why Native students aren't capable of finishing a higher degree or uh, higher education because. You know, what are factors, you know, poverty or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not a lot of research, very little research done on the factors of why they do succeed at it. And so we wanted to start scratching the surface of that and look at what are these factors that motivate and engage kids to want to study math and science. And so I looked at the, you know, around the fifth to eighth grade level, because um, I have a lot of friends that are Native American who are very, you know, very accomplished engineers and scientists, mm-hmm. lawyers, doctors, you know, there's uh, a lot of folks. But we wanted to, we wanted to capture that story, um, and so that's that's why I went down that path. Do you um and I've I've done some work in the past on reservations, and um, you know there's a lot of poverty, and there's a lack of resources, educational resources. Um, mm-hmm. In what ways do you think um, STEM could be made stronger on reservations? Apart, you know, I guess resources and what else? Well, I think the important thing is let them see it. Let them see. 
uh, others that are just like them that have been accomplished to our scientists. You know, show them role models. Show them people that are just like them that have gone off and accomplished something. And then hopefully bring something back to their classroom or to their teacher that gives them a connection to, um, say, engineering, for example. Um, let's look at what our ancestors were capable of doing. Our ancestors were incredible scientists and engineers. I mean, they built you know, remarkable structures back over a thousand years ago when Europe was in the Dark Ages. You know, you can talk about Mesa Verde or Chaco Canyon. You can talk about, you know, or Moundville, Alabama or Cahokia, Illinois. You know, these are places where native peoples built remarkable structures. Uh, and they were observers of the world. They were astronomers. They were botanists. They were those things that I need, I want kids to connect to what their heritage is because then that gives them a sense of ownership, I think. And, and then maybe you want to make them, they give them that motivation to learn. Which I, we don't get that in our curriculum. We don't get that in our textbooks. And if you can provide it to them, and examples of that, then maybe you can you can you can catch them, you can hook them, mm-hmm. and get them interested. And uh, and this is a question not just for Native American students, but just students in general. And also considering you wrote a book uh, for for children, wh- when do you really want to get students um, as far as getting interested in STEM? You know, when they're in elementary school, junior high, senior high, you know. How do you approach that? Sure. Uh, in, in, at the end of grade school, you know, by the, t- by the time eighth grade rolls around, mm-hmm. you know, you could you'd lose them. You know, if you don't get them, you know, I can't do math. And they say, I'm not good at math. Well, why not? Well, I don't really, you know, it hasn't been shown to them it's fun that you can do something with it. So I think by eighth grade, if you can get kids, you can capture their imagination about it and what's fun about it, then they're going to stick with it. You know, give them, give them something to, to see that they can do with, not just numbers on a page, but what numbers mean, why you can't divide by zero, you know, and show them an example of dividing by zero, you know, people die when you divide by zero, mm-hmm. and I think it's, you make that connection, and you go, I had no idea. <laughs> I'm speaking with John B. Harrington, a former naval aviator and NASA astronaut, and also author of Mission Into Space. You can find more information about his work on his Facebook page, Commander John B. Harrington. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Spacewalks Money Talks or on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. You can contact me directly on Twitter at SpacewalksMT and on Instagram at SpacewalksMoneyTalks. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at WarScholar.org and MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at ChrisAlvarez.com and FullContactNerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Do you see any fixes that are needed in educational policy in this regard? Well, I think one of the things you, you can get in a kid's curriculum, give them examples of their, um, that they can, they can take home. That they can go, I take home in a sense that it uh, goes back to the idea of what, what their ancestors did. Yeah, in terms of policy, I think if, if you can get in their curriculum, you know, I want to bring something and make a, as I always call it, call it, call it a cultural toolkit. Hmm. Something I can bring into the teacher to let 
her or him presents something to students that they can identify with. Um, I had a, I was taught college algebra, and my college algebra book, uh, there were two of them, exact same name, but one of them had Leonardo DiCaprio in it. And it had some stuff that was fun. It had something that captured people's attention, mm -hmm. uh, not just the numbers, but something they could identify with. And I think that's what, what people don't want is to be bored. They want something that's going to spark their interest. And if you can find something like that and get it into curriculum, um, then I think you know kids will take more ownership of it. Now, as a former astronaut, how would you so you know schools are cutting back in different ways different programs to save money and because of budgets and they're cutting back on physical education and art what's your concern about that well i think what's like what did einstein once say science is art and artists are scientists hmm. something i'm not exact quote but there's a you know the thing is that there's a creative bent to what we do um i think being able to problem solve and being creative in your problem solving uh goes along the idea of art uh, people don't seem to necessarily say STEM anymore. They say STEAM. Mm -hmm. They include the art component in there. Um, and I, I think it's important is to get kids a chance to kind of this idea of expressing themselves mm -hmm. and and being able to problem solve. My daughter's, uh, you know, one daughter is a graphic artist, my oldest daughter, uh, never really was into math at all. Uh, she got a degree in art, uh, graphic art, and then later on she, got a, uh, she went back and learned how to program. And now she does, does a lot of programming and does a lot of work on the computer for the artwork and some stuff she programs. So she's figured that out. My other daughter is a, is a stylist, a cosmetologist, and she loves to create things, you know, doing hair and stuff. So they both have a creative bent. I mean, they didn't follow me down the engineering path, which is fine. But I want them to express themselves and be able to be creative. You know, they have this creative nature about them. They like to, like to make stuff. One of the things when I did my research, one of the girls that I who was in this my subject group, she said, I've got to make a rocket, I got to color it, and I got to make it personal. <laughs> yeah. Talk about making a rocket personal. I mean that's that's kind of an easy thing to do is they now they find something they take ownership of. Mm -hmm. And that, I enjoyed that. So I see that um that you've done some work within the space industry. Can I ask you a few questions about um space sure. business? Sure. Uh, so from from your uh viewpoint what in space business technology or policy are you most concerned about and why, either with exploration or space commercialization? Well, a, a couple things. Um, you know, one, now that I'm no longer in NASA and I'm not, you know, hey, send John to the moon, I'll go in a heartbeat. You know, send John to the Mars, I'll go to, I'll go to Mars. Because <laughs> that was my business. Now, stepping outside of that, looking back on it, I say, okay, well, there's this commercial component to it. As I left the office in 2005 to work in a commercial space world, I was one of the first astronauts. Rick Searfoss and myself, I think, were the first two, Jeff Ashby maybe. And so I had to, um, I went to a business where, where I was going to fly paying passengers in space. Mm -hmm. And we won the same agreement that SpaceX did. Uh, unfortunately, we were owned by a millionaire, not a billionaire. Uh. And we didn't, we didn't have the $400 million that we couldn't raise the, the money to match what NASA would give us. And Elon Musk didn't have that problem. He's been very successful. I mean, gosh, they just flew two humans uh, on the Dragon the other day. That was great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a commercial aspect to it, but who pays for the commercial aspect? NASA. If NASA wasn't paying them to do it, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, it's an expensive endeavor, and what other launch platform there is, what else would be launching, I don't know. But he gets billions of dollars from us, the taxpayers, mm -hmm. to fly his vehicle. So it's commercial in the sense that it was, a, it was started by a private company, 
uh, space shuttle is built by a private company, or you know, built by Rockwell and you know, flown by United Space Alliance and such. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only difference is that NASA doesn't own the vehicle. NASA rents or leases a vehicle essentially mm-hmm. from a private from a private company. Um, the idea of um, you know budgets, its idea is that you know now we're going to go to the moon in 2024. Uh, that sounds nice. One, why? And two, where's the money? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've appropriated maybe one, maybe two billion, 1.4 or two billion dollars initially, but it's going to take you like 30 billion to get there, and mm-hmm. and that's four years away. And they just let a contract out for a lander. Um, I don't see it in this in this political climate. A house control, a, a Democratic controlled house appropriating money for a Republican president's wish list to get to get to the moon in 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's going what's what is the rationale for going why are, why are we spending that money uh, we've done it before are we going to stay and to mine the moon well okay are we mining the moon for the US are we mining the moon for the world are we mining the moon or is China gonna mine so I have this much I think a much broader picture of it since I've stepped out of the office is that we have a lot of issues down here that we can't seem to resolve and taking those same issues to space, how you can do? How you, if you can't resolve them down here, how you can resolve it up there? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's kind of a. I never looked at it that way, but it, I've kind of stepped back with a different a different opinion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the impression I get, uh, sort of, with the current space race, is that China has the resources and the motivation, but the U.S. still has a lot of the necessary technical skill and experience um, to make travel to the moon and then on to Mars happen. Um, is that a corrected assessment, and what's your impression of that? Well, who's on the moon right now? Well, China has. China. Yeah. <laughs> you know, China's on the back on the dark, on the back side of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so they, they have the technical capability to do it. They have you know, resources that don't require you know, the Congress to vote on it, you know, and the public's back support of it. Mm-hmm. So they can pretty much do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if that's their goal, once again, what, what is their goal? Mm-hmm. Well, why, why are they uh, trying to achieve that? So the side, there's a, if you want to talk about a space race, I don't see us having a race right now with the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, I see us having a commercial space race, you know, between Boeing and, and uh, Sierra Nevada or, and uh, Orbital or, or uh, SpaceX. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of companies vying for the commercial dollars. The only two reasons to fly in space really are political or commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did we did the space race in the 60s and 70s because we wanted to beat the Russians. We did that by the end of the 60s, um, and then now it's com- as commercial is that well now folks are vying for the commercial dollar. If you can't make money doing it, you're not going to put money into it. No one's going to invest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's no political reason to do it, then my question is why are we doing it? The, because it's their thing. You know, doesn't hold water when you have other issues that you have to pay for. Yeah. How about space tourism? Do you see that as um, a decent uh, business model? Uh, you know, I, I left the office to do that. Um, but at the same time, you're, you know, people have a lot of discretionary income. There's a lot of folks that are really rich. Mm-hmm. And there are folks that will pay $200,000, you know, to get four or five minutes of weightlessness and to say they went to space. Mm-hmm. And then that's, for them, something to say, I went to space, you know, and, and that's great. You know, people paid, you know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars to fly on the Soyuz, mm-hmm. um, and they've gone to the space station. If people can make it safe, 
uh, if these companies can make it safe and they can do it routinely, bring the cost down, more people get a chance to do it. I look at it as um, commercial aviation in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, a lot of stuff. You know, we were, we've been killing people for a long time in airplanes. <laughs> yeah, honestly, we really have. Yeah, but it's gotten much safer the more you do it. You brought the cost down. Uh, I see that in commercial space at some point in time. I don't see it the next two years. I don't see it maybe in the next ten years. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take some. It's going to take some growth because the minute you, you know, you blow up a rocket and you kill paying passengers, mm-hmm. you know, we 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 quit flying the shuttle because of the Columbia. Mm-hmm. You know, people cannot tolerate, you know, the government didn't want to tolerate, um, you know, losing people. And, and that's unfortunate because the you know, shuttle was a remarkable vehicle, but it was a very complicated vehicle. Mm-hmm. But we stopped it. We started killing people. You know, and, uh, um, and it's going to happen again. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to see it happen, but I think at some point in time, you know, a rocket's going to blow up on the pad. You know, um, we killed, you know, they, they killed a, a gentleman who died on the uh, Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. Uh, on their on their vehicle, so uh, you know it's engineering. It's, it's a tough thing, yeah. but can you do it? Can you do it routinely and safely so that people, you know, um, it's, you can do it more often. The more you do it, the safer essentially it's going to be. Just like commercial aviation. Yeah, I mean it's an endeavor where everyone's trying to push the envelope. You know, um, so there's going to be. Yeah, you want to push the envelope, and people are paying to push the envelope. You know, they're, they're paying to come back and talk about it. They're not paying to. Right. They're not paying to you know to die and not come home. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's there's folks who'll do that and go to Mars. You know, they'll pay and go to Mars one way. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- I wouldn't do it, but there are people out here that would. So mm-hmm. I like the Earth. Earth's a good <laughs> good place we live. Do you see? Are there any um, benefits to uh, building another space station? You know, a bigger one that's more. Uh, you know, I've heard talk of turning, creating sort of an orbiting hotel for people to go up and hang out at and come back down. Well, they're talking about doing that with the space station. Um, you know, I have I have friends working in a, um, you know, one of my crewmates actually, Mike L.A. Mike Lopez Alegria. He is in a company. I apologize, I don't know the name off the top of my head. Um, the idea of having a habitat on space station and, and turning it into have some tourism capability to it. Also, uh, I think Bob Bigelow um, out of out of Las Vegas. I met him mm-hmm. some time ago. He has the habitat. There's a hab out there flying out beyond the orbit of the Hubble. That's uh, inflatable habitat. You know, so I think people are looking that direction. But once again, who controls the space station? The Russians and the Americans. Mm-hmm. We have two mission controls that both have guidance and have control over the space station. Well, that costs money. And if governments don't fund it, I don't see the private sector paying the billions of dollars it's going to cost to operate the thing every year. I mean, what's, you only do that if you return on your investment. I, that's a lot of that's a lot of money spent getting people in space. Yeah. Um, hmm. So either an education or space business, um, do you see any issues that could easily be easily be fixed or addressed? For space business, I think or, the fact that Elon Musk. Just launched, you know, two Americans on a off U.S. soil is great. I mean, you look at the interest; it was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do it routinely, and then maybe next year start taking of the seven seats, I think on board the Dragon, four of them, you know, maybe go to uh, paying pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about, oh my God, forbid, doing a movie on the space station. I heard <laughs> that the other day. Um, you know, I just I there's a part of me that looks at the space station, what we did, and 
always assembled it as an orbiting laboratory, as an orbiting engineering platform mm-hmm. that's been in space six times as long as, as it would take us to go to Mars and back. Mm-hmm. We've had people on board every minute of every day since 2000. And that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't, you know, you don't hear about that much. But, but to turn it into a, a movie set, you know, to turn it into a place where people can float look out the window, I don't know if that's what our money was spent to do. That we as taxpayers invested in, in other countries, not just us. This is a the neatest thing about the International Space Station is it's international. You know, I, I worked with the people that I was trained to hunt as a as a naval aviator, right. and I you know I worked I lived in Russia. I, I worked with Russians. It was great. I loved it. That I think is one of the biggest benefits of uh, of the space of the International Space Station is is that that cooperation on that level. The the higher ups need to figure out how to get do a little bit better job of it. But as astronauts and cosmonauts, I think we all, you know, we, we figured it out. We, we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. As far as um, higher education for, um, you know, these different science, space sciences, are there any challenges that you'd like to see fixed as far as um, helping graduate students? The challenges, I think, you know, if you can motivate interest, if you can generate interest, in people that want to learn how to do that, mm-hmm. you know what they saw the other day. Oh, I'm going to work for SpaceX now. That's what you know. You know, students are going to want to get engineering degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in an environment where we wanted to go to space because we were going to space. Mm-hmm. So the you know the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs generated the uh, the interest in the generation that did the space shuttle and the space station. Mm-hmm. You know what what is SpaceX going to do with Boeing or Sierra Nevada or you know those companies? are going to generate the interest in the next generation of kids to want to do that next great thing. And that's where it comes from. It's, uh, I think, for all the good that, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and those type of things, they generate interest. They're not the reality, but they do generate interest in in people to, um, you know, to accomplish some really, really difficult goals. What do you? So I've heard that um, I, I, another person I've interviewed said that there might not be enough jobs uh, within specifically the satellite industry. That there are maybe too many people training for uh, the limited jobs that that will be out there. That essentially there will be a contraction in the number of companies working on space issues. Um, that there's a lot of jockeying right now. Does that make sense to you? And, and what are your no, thoughts on I'm that? Not- I haven't, I haven't really, I haven't heard that. I'm, I kind of wonder what the rationale is for that. Um, you know, space is a big place. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can generate a market for something, if you can generate interest, there's, there's a, something you can do. There's something people are going to want to pay money for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. If I don't see it being a contraction. I think if you bring the cost down, mm-hmm. more people are going to do it. Uh, if you can bring the factor of ten, say from ten thousand dollars a pound to a thousand dollars a pound. Mm-hmm. which is really kind of the goal. I'm not sure what Elon Musk, what his target is, but you know, people talk about that factor of 10. Mm-hmm. Then more people are going to have to, you know, people want to pay 10000 to do it. Well, how many people pay $1,000 a pound to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, you generate more interest and at a lower cost, more people will do it, like flying airplanes for that matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I'm in a tra- and I'm in a train station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. So again, within... Um the space business or education. Um, are there any issues that you have noticed that people aren't talking enough about of? I, the idea of taking money away from education. I mean, that's the, that's the issue. If you want kids to be, you know, talented scientists, engineers, 
uh, you need to you know, fund education in a manner that um, you know kids do want to learn. You know, get the ability to learn the math. You can't do the math. You can't do the science. Mm-hmm. You know, mathematics is the is the is the core to all to all the technical fields. It really is. I'm a mathematician, so I, I say that. Mm-hmm. But really, if you can't do the math, you can't do the other stuff. So, how do we you know keep you know funding education and pay teachers enough? So to, you get interesting and it qualified people will come out and teach and be that be that teacher that that has a background in engineering in the sciences and they can come in and teach kids and get them motivated you know what they did in their career not just you know hey here's numbers in a book here's what you do with those numbers here's here's how I here's how as an engineer or as a test pilot I used calculus or I use differential equations or I you know um, you know factored polynomials you know, it didn't make sense because there's a there's a natural there's a practical application to that. That's a that's a really tough one to answer. Hmm. It, it takes it's going to take. You can't just throw money at it, but it helps. Yeah, <laughs> it helps to, to fund it. More people will will, uh, will do it. So let's say you were um, head of NASA for a day or a week. I'll, I'll give you. Let's say you had a year at NASA. You were in charge of NASA. <laughs> What would you do, and maybe they're doing it right, as far as education and, and promotion of space and that sort of thing? Is there anything you'd like to see implemented or, or expanded or anything like that? Well, I remember, I remember talking to Jim Bridenstine some time ago, and I, I know Jim from Oklahoma, current NASA administrator. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, I had talked to him about how NASA's budget had been cut in education because he said it was, what did, what did the Trump administration say? They were duplicating efforts, so they were going to cut the budget for NASA education hmm. because other entities were doing it. Well, nobody does it like NASA. You know, kids don't look to, uh, you know, unfortunately, National Science Foundation for inspiration on, you know, stuff with the stars. Mm-hmm. You know, they look at NASA for the astronauts, they look at NASA for the scientists, for the launch vehicles, those type of things. So NASA has a unique platform to motivate kids to want to learn. You know, given that, because we all, we're all interested in what's in space. We all want to know what's out there. It's a, it's a fundamental question we all have. And I think NASA is uniquely positioned to do that. And I think one thing they, they never did really well was get that message out. And I think they're trying to do it better. Jim talked about it as something he wanted to do. Is it promoting it in the way they're doing with, you know, doing movies and stuff like that? I, I don't know. I don't think that's the right way to do it. But the idea is make stuff available. A lot of teachers do not know that NASA had educational materials, curriculum, available free of charge to, to schools and students. You know, I go out with a rocket's handbook to teach us, you know, this is, this is NASA's free for you to use, and it shows kids how to build, build certain rockets, how to test them, you know, the process. Mm-hmm. Not just rockets, but other things. And, and teachers usually don't know that unless they have an interest in NASA initially or talk to somebody that's done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think opening that up and making it more available to teachers um, and kind of put it for them so they have to look for it. Make it so they have to look for it. You know, make it available to them. And go, oh, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then they can utilize it. I'm speaking with John B. Harrington, a former naval aviator and NASA astronaut, and also author of Mission Into Space. You can find more information about his work on his Facebook page, Commander John B. Harrington. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. 
please sign up for my newsletter at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Please post your comments and questions about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Spacewalks Money Talks or on YouTube at Spacewalks Money Talks. You can contact me directly on Twitter at SpacewalksMT and on Instagram at Spacewalks Money Talks. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. I guess it sounds like there's not adequate outreach to teachers themselves then, or is there is there a program in NASA to to educate teachers on what there is yeah. out there? Yeah, there was. I, I'm not sure right now if there still is, but back when I was when I was there, hmm. you know, teachers would come to different NASA centers, their areas of expertise, be it NASA Ames or Huntsville, Marshall Space Flight Center, Kennedy Space Center, Johnson, um, Glenn Research Center, all these different places, people within that local area could utilize NASA, and they would go have teacher workshops and stuff. There were education workshops. I participated in them as an astronaut with teachers, um, and they get motivated. They're, they're fired up. They come home, and they both, blah, you know, they, they dump it on their students, yeah. and that's great. Um, I don't know if they're still doing it to that extent. Mm. Um, you know, I'd heard they, they cut back on the, the education budget, so I think that took a chunk out of it. Um, but I, I can't say that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's going how much, you know, where's the money going to go? Oh, how much money is there? And where's it going to go? Is it going to go to the Mars? Is it going to go to the moon? Mm-hmm. Is it going to go to help educate kids so that we can go to Mars someday? You know, if you don't motivate them now to be, you know, to get the education, to be able to solve those problems, we won't be going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, the generations are going to die. The generations going to die out, and uh, mm-hmm. we need to keep inspiring that next generation with something. Yeah, um, something cool that you put in your mission to space book was um, sort of the glossary, the Chickasaw words. Yeah, so, I thought that was great. Um, you know, ideas that you know, what's the what's the word for astronaut? Uh, you know, never had a word for astronaut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea is that uh, it's a very descriptive language, and so what does an astronaut do? And they came together and said, well, uh, in my case, you know, I walked above the Earth, and so Abba, Abba, above Noah, Walker, above uh, above Walker. Hmm. So Chikasha Abba Noah would be uh, my name or what I am, hmm. and Chikasaw Space Walker, above Walker. Yeah, I think it's pretty neat. Do you feel... Um... I guess, uh, and this this might sound like a very negative question. It's not meant to be, but um, do you feel that the cultural connection, um, the cultural spirit, is as strong as it might be, or or might have been in the past? You know, does that still instill the kind of pride it should? Yeah, I think you know, you know, growing when I was growing up, you know, my uh, my grandmother, my great grandmother spoke the language fluently. But she wouldn't speak it to anybody except people her own age. Hmm. For whatever reason, she chose not to, you know, teach us that. My, my, if my grandpa knew it, he didn't talk, teach to my mom. Uh, I've learned more, you know, as an adult than I ever knew as a kid. I learned more Creek words from my dad because my dad went to school with, with kids who were Creek. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I've always been proud of, the, you know, my heritage. And my mom's side, I'm Chickasaw, my dad's side, and I think I'm, I'm, uh, English and Scottish and, and Norwegian somewhere. Mm-hmm. But see, on both sides of my family, you know, all kind of came together in Indian territory. My one grandmother's already there. Uh, the other great-grandmother 
until I came in um, right around the turn of the, turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So the product, two different cultures. Um, always been very proud of both of them. You know, the, the Chickasaw part of it, you know, being a member of a, a Russian member of a tribe is what came to NASA's attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it's, I, I take great pride in the fact I get to share my, you know, my heritage with kids that never had a, uh, a role model in that position. So I think that the, you know, culturally just as strong and probably more so now because before there was a lot more, you know, the idea early on of assimilation and taking Indian out of it and that type of thing. No, that's not. You don't have to do that. You know, um, be very proud of who you are, where you're from, what you, what your ancestors did. Um, if they hadn't done what, what they did, I wouldn't be sure to, oh, we have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave me the opportunity to walk this earth um, by the fact that they were able to survive, you know, countless, countless incursions upon their their livelihood, mm-hmm. and my tribe survived is doing quite well. So, and I think a lot of tribes um, look back on what what challenges they had, um, you know, in the history of this country, mm-hmm. and uh, and have, have done quite well given all the things against them. Okay. There's, a lot, there's a lot of pride in that, a lot of cultural. So, so, so you're seeing progress right now, not any kind of um, regression in any kind of way. I want to say regression. I think you know, there's challenges like say right now this COVID pandemic has really affected like say the Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, incredible number of uh, you know, per capita um, deaths. You know, um, um, people that are affected as well as deaths, and and you know, here that's in our country. You mm-hmm. know, and, how how are we letting that happen? How are we not? How's our government not providing the resources? You know, we're talking about sending resources to this country, that country, this country. Well, why can't we? We're sending them to Russia. Why can't we send them here? Right. Why can't we send all the ventilators down there? Those type of things. Can't we support um, what's going on in this country? Because this is, you know, a lot of, you know, part of my family is already here, been here for you know centuries. The other part, you know, came along later. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all in this together. Let's mm-hmm. let's help each other out. Yeah. So when you so your progression from naval aviator to astronaut um, was it sort of a premeditated, a planned progression, or how did that go? Well, it started off. You know, I I joined the navy because uh, I I tutored a guy in calculus who was a navy captain who who do, flew Dauntless dive bombers in World War Two, hmm. and uh, he convinced me to join the navy. You know, I flew as a kid, but it wasn't until much later that I actually thought, well, I could do this for a career. And I joined the Navy, and I went off and I, I hunted Russian submarines for a few years. You know, I used to dream about it as a kid. I used to play in a cardboard box and dream I was going to the moon. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I was in my first my first squadron. You know, when I was a, I realized if I wanted to be an astronaut, I'd need to stay in the Navy and go to test pilot school. And then, um, you know, you have to apply to it. It's a very competitive thing. I applied in, a couple times. And when I got there, I realized that, hey, all those people I watched on TV back in the 60s, half of them were Navy test pilots. Hmm. Oh, by the way, their names were on the plaques of all the graduates. <laughs> so you start seeing like names like John Young, Alan Shepard, you know, Gene Cernan, all these guys, Jim Lovell. These are all naval aviators, you know, and, and they were naval test pilots. And so um, if you don't apply, you won't be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And I needed a master's degree, so I changed my career path in Navy so they would send me to get a master's degree. Hmm. And they did. They sent me to Monterey, and I got um, a master's in the aeronautical engineering, and applied a couple times. And I was very fortunate to get uh, get an interview. And I guess they liked my story. And uh, you know, they they could go to space with me for a couple of weeks and not uh, 
you know, that I, I wouldn't be too chatty. <laughs> you know, so, but, uh, yeah. So, so at what point, um, did you think, did it hit you like, wow, this could actually happen? You know, I could realize my dreams, like wearing that. Well, it's, it's not that I realized that I could do that when I got a phone call, you know, and said, hey, come down and we'll interview you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, but it was the idea is that you, I applied, you know, knowing if I didn't apply, I wouldn't have any chance. Mm-hmm. But I applied with the, the possibility, but I just thought it was a really, really slim, you know, it's a slim possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the requisite, you know, I did well in my squadrons. I had, you know, decent grades, maybe not early on. But I figured it out later on, and I did well on my master's degree. And so, um, I think NASA looked at it and said, you know, does he have the requisite, you know, skill set, you know, and like say, can we go camping with this guy for two weeks, and get along with him? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you could be this. I tell people, you could be the smartest person in your class. You could be the, you know, top students. You could have straight A's. Uh, but if you can't talk to other people and you can't work work the team, NASA's not going to hire you. They're not. Yeah, if you. I think you can be the smartest person in class, uh, but if you can't work well with others, NASA's not going to hire you. Mm-hmm. So be competent, be a good communicator, be a good team player, you know, have a good solid background in something that NASA could utilize mm-hmm. uh, in their interest, and then uh, you know that you you can go through that little wicket. And I think I did. So do you go? Do you are you trained in flying the shuttle, or are there other duties that you trained at? As a because well, you were. I, mission specialist right yeah i was a mission specialist but i was a naval aviator so i still flew the jet i got to fly in the t-38 i flew the front seat mm-hmm. i got my flight time as required so i got you know 15 hours a month in the jet mm-hmm. which is great because you know it's a fast moving jet it's dangerous you gotta you know gotta think think um quickly mm-hmm. and that's space flight readiness training they call it and so but i didn't train to fly the shuttle i flew the sim a bunch of times and i got to land the sim and but I sat as a flight engineer. I was the guy that sat between the pilot and the commander mm-hmm. and helped them, you know, you know, it's crew coordination. You know, there's a bunch of switches, power sources, everything. We all work together to solve the problems that would always come up in our simulations and hopefully not come up during actual flight, but we were trained for it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then I trained to spacewalk and I trained to do car, move, move different cargo things and some experiments. And you just, you're not, you're not specific to one area of expertise you get trained in a bunch of stuff um, mm-hmm. yeah no, i think it's great i mean yeah you, you get trained in a lot of different areas and mm-hmm. uh that helps everybody else out we you know we back each other up as well so did you have any hair raising moments during training that you uh care to discuss or can discuss hair, during training yeah uh, well, yeah, every every uh, every launch, every entry, uh, ass and entry sim or hair, you know, hairs on hair on fire mm-hmm. experiences. Um, since you can't you can't train, you can't simulate how how exciting the launch is. So you do that by overwhelming the, the crew with a multi- multitude of failures, mm-hmm. all these cascading failures. You know, so that you up the stress level uh, that you experience on a real launch. You up that stress level by giving a lot of a, a lot of uh, uh, malfunctions that uh, they're all coordinated, they all work together. You know, one cascades into something else, mm-hmm. and so that's where the stress level comes up. And I, we've had we had numerous launches where um, most of the time, I'd say pretty much every single time, we made it back somewhere, either to a east coast of the board uh, board site, you know, Cherry Point or somewhere up the coast, mm-hmm. or to Spain or Morocco or wherever. Um, I think once we didn't quite make it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You know, uh, and there's always. The one there was always one trainer 
If she ever showed up in the training room, you know something along that line was going to happen. Uh, Sue Crippen, Bob Crippen, uh, the pilot of the first space shuttle, John Young and Bob Crippen. His daughter was one of the trainers. Hmm. And if Sue showed up, if Sue showed up into one of your sims, mm-hmm. something was going to happen. You know, you knew something was going to be pretty interesting. So that's fun. So, so is you. And I'm just curious about the the mental process as far as overcoming you know stress levels. Is it more about just focus on the training and do it, or do you? Is it about take a deep breath, think it through? You know, how, what's your process there? No, it's it's it be know your systems. You have to know your systems really well mm-hmm. because it's not just a matter of throwing a switch. It's not a matter of throwing three or four switches. It's a matter of knowing why you're throwing that switch. It's a matter of knowing what powers that switch. Because you may throw a switch all day long, but if you lost the power over here, that switch doesn't work. And so. You know, what we're all trained to do was to really know your systems really, really well and to be able to translate that into when a malfunction occurs, you know, why are you doing that specific thing? Not just doing it because you're supposed to do it, knowing why you do it. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and I, that's my training as a naval aviator. If, from the minute I sat in an airplane as a naval aviator, that was just drilled into my head. Mm-hmm. Is that don't just know how to do the procedure, know why you're doing the procedure. Uh, because that that will help you out because things don't always go as planned. You know, mm-hmm. um, procedures are based on what the engineer thinks uh, and, the, and the pilot that works with them thinks it's going to be, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. And so knowing it really well, um, I ran into that as a naval aviator, ran into it as an astronaut. So, do you talk each other through? Like when you hit a stressful situation, do you talk each each other through it, or is it more like? Everyone's silently doing their part. I think you all work together. Uh, you you value the competence of the person that you're flying with. The neat thing about flying as a crew is that you have complete confidence in the people that are around you, mm-hmm. uh, that they're going to do their job, and that you're you're not going to. I think what we all want, what we all don't want to do, is not do our job. Mm-hmm. You know that. What did that? What did one of the astronauts say? Oh, please don't screw the pooch. You know, don't, you know, I, I don't want to, it's not, not a fear of dying. It's a fear of making a mistake. Right. Because I could lead, that could lead you to you dying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't make a mistake and trust the people you're working with. How long do you train as, as a crew before you go on a flight? Uh, and in our case, probably about, it was about two, about two years. Hmm. Uh, it would have been sooner, but we had, they delayed the shuttle for some issues with the main engines. And so they backed up some launches to uh, I'd say I trained for about just about two years, um, you know, for that mission, acid entry sims, uh, orbit sims, um, you know, flying, you know, spacewalking, working in the neutral buoyancy lab, mm-hmm. um, training for the spacewalks. What was the moment, at what moment during the flight, during liftoff and then uh, out into space, at what moment did you really feel that thrill, or did you have the luxury of feeling the thrill when you went up? <laughs> Jim Weatherby as a commander, he said, I don't want any, I don't want anybody hooping and hollering on launch. I don't want you going, you know. He said, inside of T minus nine minutes, you know, that's from when the countdown starts, Prunes will go all the way through to liftoff. Mm-hmm. Inside of T minus nine, you know, totally focused, do your job. You know, and when you do your job well, then at the end of that, then you can, you can enjoy what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But don't take liberties, you know, do your job. And very, and it was great. It wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't like a hardcore, no kidding, you know, un- unenjoyable thing. You know, he just, he knew we would do our jobs. And then once we did it successfully, uh, then we'd have the chance to enjoy what we did. And that's what we did. We, you know, we flew for 11 days. Mm-hmm. 
constantly busy. I mean, constantly busy. And then on that 11th day, we're getting ready to come home. And like, I haven't had a chance to really enjoy, <laughs> hmm. enjoy being a tourist up here. And then we had bad weather in Florida, so I had a three-day vacation coming home. You know, we, we, we couldn't deorbit because of bad weather. So <laughs> I flew around the earth for three days looking out the window. It was fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely fabulous. I got to be a space tourist for, you know, for three, three days of my, essentially my 14-day mission. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So how about the spacewalk um, when you stepped out? How was that feeling? Or was that, again, all about business? That, you know, that's one thing when you, when you step out, the earth is 220 miles below you. <laughs> yeah. You hang on. You hang on kind of tight for a few minutes, uh, but then you realize the high, the tighter you hang on, the more tired you're going to get, and you don't need to. Mm-hmm. And so it just takes a little bit. You don't you don't have safety divers around you anymore. It's just you and your and your spacewalk spacewalking partner. Um, and so you just take your time. And I think uh, we all talk about uh, slower is faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, do things slowly, and you can get them all done. If you go too fast, you can get out of control. Uh, and the water the water works against you. So it slows you down. So it's hard to start, and it's easy to stop. Well, in space, there's no, there's no, there's no water, right? There's no atmosphere, and so it's easy to start, and it's hard to stop. And so the idea is to be very deliberate, take your time, move slowly, and you'll, you'll get it done. You actually get it done in faster than you did in the pool. Hmm. Right. And did you write a lot of after-action reports? You know, comparing training versus uh, what you came across. We came back. We had a debrief. We would debrief certain things that came up. We had some we had some issues. A couple of things didn't work. Um, had a uh, had an interference problem with a mobile transporter that goes across the front of the space station. Bumped into an antenna and it made the arm it made the thing get stuck. We don't know why. We ended up figuring it out. And then it, it fundamentally changed our one of our spacewalks. And uh, and we did it on the fly. And I'm one of the things I'm incredibly proud of. On our mission, is that when stuff didn't go as it, as planned, we worked around it, and we did stuff we were not trained to do hmm. specifically, and we did it well. We did it really well. Actually, did it faster than we did if we'd done it the normal way. Mm-hmm. And I am incredibly proud of the fact that Mike and I were able to accomplish doing things when um, when stuff broke mm-hmm. uh, and didn't and didn't uh, wasn't where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was huge, huge feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. So, so who do you think are the better pilots, Air Force or Navy? <laughs> oh, come on. That's a silly question. Of course, <laughs> Navy. Well, no, 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 I'll take that back. I'll say, well, you mean Air Force pilots or Naval aviators? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Forgive me. Go, yeah, that, that answers that question right there. Naval aviators, not a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should not have made that mistake. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's, that's fine. No, it's great. It's, it's fun season. <laughs> um. So was the so was the flight everything you expected it to be? Oh yeah, it was everything. It's you know they, they'll tell you certain things, but until you get out and experience it, uh, it doesn't have the same. They'll tell you, oh, you may experience this, and you go, yeah, right, and boom, you do, and you go, wow. Um, you know, your your mind will play games on you, will flip you upside down when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you mentally, you'll be right side up, the next second you're upside down in your mind. You haven't moved. But your body, your mind thinks you're in the other, other position. And that's really cool. That's very freaky. Yeah. Um, you got those high energy particles that smack in the eyeball and kick off a little, little flash of light. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's an interesting when that happens, especially when you can't sleep. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're floating. You're, you're floating. You're trying to sleep. You've ever, you're ever not touching anything. That's weird. Um, how, but you get used to it. You do. You how really do, you, do. 
how, how are you secured when you're sleeping? Um, there's a sleeping bag, uh, you know, on, on the shuttle. Since we didn't have, we had one crew, we didn't, you know, didn't do, uh, you know, two crews. Where they have sleep containers, boxes. Uh, we just slept in sleeping bags. Yeah, we slept in sleeping bags, and I velcroed my head to the pillow. It's kind of fun. Big, big band comes over your forehead, and you, and it velcros to the pillow. You don't really need a pillow because you're not laying on it. But you don't want your head to head to float up. Um, and and you did um, you you docked with the uh, the space station, right? Or did you? Yeah, yeah, we docked. Yeah. And what was that like? That was neat. Um, you know, when you see this little star in the sky, and you just get closer to it, that star becomes a vehicle. That was a neat. The idea is that you see this little star in the distance, this little bright object, you know, you realize that's where you're going, and then pretty soon it, you know, it morphs out into this, you know, amazing structure that's sitting in front of you. It's like, wow. And now, you, now you're flying in close formation at 17,500 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> And you touch you touch it less than tenth of a foot per second, so um, you know mm -hmm. you're going really really slow. Uh, you're going fast, but you're going really slow together right. as you're moving. And you come together, and the space station's just huge thing. We finally we lost the computer right before we docked. It was really weird. Oh, and, wow. uh, <laughs> it was pretty exciting, right? Pretty exciting at the very very end. And Jim did a fabulous job. He's a very very uh, competent, um, cool mannered um, aviator. Yeah. And, and Sue's thinking that's exactly why I put you through all this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That, so that's the thing is you always, you know, anticipate the worst and thank goodness it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How far away was the uh, station when you first saw it as a, as a dot, as a star? Oh, gosh, I don't know how many miles that was. I, I can't tell you. Hmm. You just see it. You kind of you're looking at it. But you're, you're sending computers. You're working really hard. It's like, you know, looking out the window going, hey, look at that. That's so cool. You go. You know, it's like, uh, you ever seen the movie uh, Vacation with Chevy Chase? Yeah, a while ago. He gets, gets, gets to the Grand Canyon, and she goes, Clark, don't you want to look at the Grand Canyon? He nods his head a couple times, and says, okay, good, got to go. <laughs> you know, it's, you look out, and you go, oh, yeah, neat, you go back to work. Yeah. Um, because you, you're, you're, you're paid to do a job. You're not paid to be a sightseer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, then then once, you, once you do your job, then look out the window. Yeah. So can you... Having been through that, can you imagine a private company doing it the same way, doing it better, doing it work, you know, less, maybe less safety standards? How how would you see that? I wouldn't say less safe. I would say they have a different way of going about it. Mm -hmm. You know, NASA has certain criteria, and, and you know, as an astronaut, you know, we, you know, our focus is safety. You know, we're not. The thing about NASA when I was working there and working the shuttle was that it was not about a profit margin. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't do anything with the idea of how are we going to make more money at this. So we started looking at a commercial entity. You know, at some point in time, between them and a business, there's a, they, have a, they have a business plan, mm -hmm. a business model they have to meet. And the hope is that that does not override the safety part of it. And so, you know, I you know, wasn't involved in that process at all. Mm -hmm. I've, I know people that were involved in the process and asked a lot of those difficult questions that hopefully, you know, they were answered the pro proper proper way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you knew in the, the SpaceX launch recently, they uh, they put the crew on board and then they loaded fuel, right? I, first I time in, in, yeah, the first time in the history of man space, or, you know, human space flight, mm -hmm. they put people on board the vehicle and then put fuel in it. Huh. It was always always fueled first because right. that was the most one of the most dangerous things you could do. Yeah. And then you put the people on board. So when I walked out to the shuttle, it was fully fueled. It had hydrogen oxygen. It was venting off gas. It was like you walked up to this living, breathing being. Mm -hmm. Well, 
now SpaceX, you know, part of their what, what they needed to do was they needed to load the fuel, load the crew, and then put the fuel on. And I can only speculate, and you know, from an engineering perspective, is that they did that because this is really cold, cryogenic hydrogen, or you know, it was liquid kerosene, I think, and uh, oxygen, the high-pressure liquefied oxygen, and so um, that boils off in the in the Florida sunshine. That boils off, and the more that boils off, the less you have to use. Right. And so the, the, the later you, you put it on the vehicle, the less boil loss you have, the more performance you have. Mm-hmm. So to me, and not being involved in that discussion, is that they're doing that because they have a limited amount of performance. They need to maximize the amount of performance on the vehicle by putting the fuel on as late as possible. Well, to me, that's a, that, you know, you're taking a huge risk. They blew up one. Right, they blew up one on the pad, mm-hmm. and so that was during the fueling process. So to me, the most dangerous part of this mission was fueling the vehicle with people on board, hmm. you know, sitting on the pad. Yeah, you know, because uh, it takes a spark with high, that liquid oxygen, it takes a spark and oxidizes right there, and the fuel's right there, and booms, you know. And I don't know if that the escape capsule would get away from it fast enough for that. I really, say it can. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that was the most dangerous part of it for is a performance issue. Why? Well, is the vehicle too heavy? You know, could you have lightened the vehicle that we didn't have to worry about that? It is all, it's a huge engineering problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, but NASA NASA signed off on SpaceX's um, process, and NASA and NASA astronauts signed off on it as well. Otherwise, Bob and Doug wouldn't have been sitting, wouldn't have wouldn't have put their uh, you know seats you know, themselves in those seats. Mm-hmm. You know, they had confidence it was going to work, and that's great. It, it did a fabulous job. Like I say, there's, you start looking at it from an engineering perspective, going, why do they do it that way? We've never done it that way before. Well, maybe you can do it that way, you know, as long as you have the right, you know, enough steps in the process that you, you minimize the risk. I think NASA, it's not about NASA taking risks. It's about NASA or SpaceX knowing what the risks are and minimizing, mitigating those risks as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Like this whole, pan, whole pandemic thing we've got going on, right? It's a huge risk. It is. It's a risk to go outside. It's a risk to be sitting here in this lobby, you know, talking without a mask on. But at the same time, is how do you mitigate the risk so that you don't catch it? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go out as often. You know, you wash your hands more often. You don't touch your face as often. So the risk is there. But what do you do to mitigate that risk so it's not going to hurt you? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing, uh, you know, uh, from a spaceflight perspective. How do you minimize the risk that you've, that you've calculated are there? And how do you make it acceptable? You know, how do you minimize it so it's acceptable? And you can apply people about killing them. I think one of the, um, sort of in that vein, I think one of the um, things that might confuse the general public is, you know, we've gone to the moon before. We know how to do it. Why is it taking so long to do it again? You know, we have the technology, you know, the know-how. Um, we don't have the budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know exactly what the budget was, but we had a continuing budget over the period of a decade mm-hmm. that was never decreased, was or increased. And I in common in, in now dollars, I'm not sure how much that was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you know, we had a through three different administrations, through Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon, mm-hmm. we had a Senate and a House that appropriated you know, authorized and appropriated funds to NASA to be able to get to the moon by by nineteen sixty nine. And that was great. You know, look look now, you got a Democratic controlled House, you got a you know, Republican president, you got a Republican controlled Senate. You know, I I don't see the I don't see the House appropriating the funds to make it possible to get to the moon in twenty twenty four. I don't. 
in the political climate we have right now, I, I don't see it happening. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's unfortunate. You know, if we had if we had two houses, if we had that both um, houses of Congress, you know, that that worked together and didn't squabble like they do, um, you know, and worked together for the good of the nation, um, which we did in the '60s. You know, given all the other stuff going on, 1968 and the assassinations and the riots and everything else, mm-hmm. you know, we we still got through that because we had a we had motivation as a country as a as administrations that saw that the money was there to make it happen he let people solve the problem because they had they had the resources to do it i don't see that i don't see that right now i see it as a you know pulling teeth to get to where you know where they want to go right now it feels like right now what they want is for nasa to learn how to do it on the cheap you know like yeah you can do it now now do it on a budget i don't know that's Um, just speculative well it's you know you know, they always people always ask me what's it like to fly in a vehicle that was um, was built by the the lowest bidder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never looked at it that way. I didn't. I never looked at it that way. You know, I looked at it as people that people had money to do it competently and do it uh, as best they could with the funds they had, and they did a great job. Mm-hmm. As as yeah, as difficult and as, as technically challenging as the space shuttle was, you know, people did a great job. You know, mm-hmm. I think they did, and and they pulled it off, and, and we got to the moon, and we, and we built the space station and stuff. So. Um, you know, I don't. You know, as astronauts, you don't, you you don't you don't look at it as the money. You you just not. You don't even think about it. <laughs> That's not your. You know, it's not your pay grade. You know, work with the people. If you have confidence that people are doing their job and doing it properly, and you have input into that, then then it's great. If you don't have input into it, and you wonder why people are doing stuff, then that's not good. You know, and that's the nice thing about uh, the astronaut corps. I thought was that we all played a part in the de- design development of the vehicle, be it from a, from a crew operational perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, displays, procedures, those type of things. We all worked, we worked together to, to make it happen. And that's what, that's what test pilots are trained to do. They're trained to be the bridge between the engineering community and the operational community. Mm-hmm. And as astronauts, that's what we did. We, we worked, we didn't fly in space. You got, you got to fly in space. You know, everything else you did was support, was support everybody else flying in space. Mm-hmm. You worked all the systems. You, you know, you were the expert for the office on this system and that system, um, and you you helped your friends fly in space. Then you got your chance to go. Mm-hmm. You know, to, being a test pilot sounds like just the most. Oh, uh, you take some. It takes some guts to be a test pilot. Is the way I see it. Well, I think people look at test pilots as you know flying new vehicles and. Pre- you know, pushing the envelope, as they say. Well, not a lot of new vehicles are being built. Back when I was a test pilot, we were upgrading the planes that had been flying that were as old as I was. Hmm. You know, so I was I was upgrading systems on airplanes, and you still have to test them. Mm-hmm. You can't just throw something into the vehicle and expect it to work. You have to test it. So we may we not I may not have been testing new aircraft, but I was testing new systems. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with space shuttle. You know, from the very first flight to the very last flight, it was a flight test program. Hmm. You know, we were always doing something different, different software upgrades or whatever, different displays. You know, so as astronauts, we had to support that that effort and make sure it worked. You know, it was, it was designed to do what it was supposed to do, and it was operated the way it was supposed to, you know, to get the most out of the system. Mm-hmm. It's just always not flying a, new, flying a new jet, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, flying a, it's flying a new radar. It's flying a new radio. It's flying a new... Uh, you know, those type of things. A new, new dome on the outside of the airplane. Okay. So now so now it doesn't seem like such a big deal. <laughs> I'm kidding. There you go. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, how'd you feel when they ended the shuttle program? Oh, that sucked. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of friends that worked at the Cape and, you know, got laid off, Ooh. got furloughed, you know, they lost their houses. I mean, just, it just was a very, very sad point in time for a lot of my friends that, that I worked with at the Cape on the Space Coast there. Um, and then, you know, SpaceX came in, other companies came in and started to, early on is they weren't hiring people that were NASA engineers. You know, they wanted, they wanted a new breed. That's what I'd heard. Yeah. They didn't want to hire the people that had the expertise because that's the way NASA did it. We want to do it a different way. Um, and I think they, I think they came around. I know, you know, folks work for SpaceX. Um, and then as it's got, you know, being successful and started saying, yeah, these people already know what they're doing. And they start hiring more people, a lot more people, the expertise to do it. Um, and I think they've done incredibly well. I mean, how many, how many rockets have we ever seen land back on a pad? That's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was really, really neat. See it go up and come back. Wow. Yeah. We should just seen it go up and go away. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. So that leads to my next question. What excites you? most about space right now oh it's watching my friends fly i mean it's, it's neat to sit back and kind of watch the you know to watch them do their thing on a new vehicle that was really neat you know i know i know um you know bob binkin and, and doug hurley they were a couple classes after me um you know, it's, it's fun to watch you when you when you watch humans flying space it's one thing when you know when you know the humans flying it's something else yeah. you know when it's family members it's something else you know it takes on a whole different different meaning and you could tell by the number of people that watched it and the interest you know people care about people on board they is not initially the technology but the fact that there's humans doing it that's where you garner the interest we've sent robots to, to mars which is fabulous we personified the robots you know that you got your curiosity yeah. and you you start you, you name them things and then you know it could be a robot but if you can put it in terms that it captures a person's imagination like you're there Mm-hmm. That takes on more excitement. And when you put people on board a rocket, a rocket has flown numerous times, mm-hmm. but now you got people on the end of it. It's just it's different, and it's a uh, it gets your heart pounding a little bit more. More people turn out to watch. Mm-hmm. Do you expect any? Um, are are there any technological advances that you um, expect to see sometime soon in in the space business? Um, I worked with um, well Franklin Chang Diaz. I'm not sure with Franklin. Franklin is uh, Costa Rican came to uh, the United States when he was a teenager, I guess, uh, ended yeah. up going, getting a PhD, astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, he has a thing called VASMIR. It's a vari- variable ISP. It's an instantaneous specific impulse. It's the amount of delta V, I guess, that you can get out of a rocket engine. Mm-hmm. Well, he uses um, charged plasma. He fires um, you know, a charged gas through a nozzle that's made from the magnetic field because it it's so hot it would melt the metal. Mm. Well, it's a variable... Um, um, Variable thrust, essentially, that it can burn, you know, halfway to Mars and turn around and slow you down. Where now we fire the engines until we get to a certain speed, mm-hmm. and we shut them off. Mm-hmm. And we coast all the way there. Right. We get ha- we get to there, and we turn around and we fire the engines to slow down. Well, that's what we do in the space shuttle. We fire the engines, and we coast for how many ever days, and then we turn around and slow down to come home. Well, if we go to Mars to cut down the time to get there, you need to have, you know, can you can you develop a, a system, an engine? That burns, maybe doesn't burn as, as as much delta V, not as much thrust, I should say, mm-hmm. as a as a chemical rocket, but it burns for a long, long time. Then you can start off really slow and accelerate, and keep accelerating, keep accelerating, keep accelerating. So you cut that time to Mars, you know, in a third, maybe. So you get there in in a lot less period of time. Mm-hmm. So in six months, you get there in, in, in two months. Or, 
I, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see Franklin's rocket engine, you know, demonstrated. And you know, if we're going to go, if we're going to go to Mars, we need to figure out a way to do it that gets us there a little bit quicker. So I don't know if you want to discuss your opinion on this debate, but do you think um, we should be going to the moon and then Mars, or just straight to Mars? Um, test pilot. So I like to see us test something out before we go. You know. Mm-hmm. You, you don't go out to the edge of the envelope initially. You start kind of batting around the middle. Mm-hmm. You start finding the edges. So if there's something that we're going to do to go to Mars and we can use the moon to prove it, that's what, that's what we should do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the better way to do it. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, if you send somebody off to Mars, they're gone. Yeah. They're gone for three years. You know, they're not coming home right away. If you go to the, if you go to the moon and something happens, you get them home pretty quickly. And so there's... You know, I can't say we're going to go to go to the moon and colonize the moon right away, um, or the things we can learn on the moon that we can utilize on Mars in that manner. Then, yeah, I think the moon's the right the right way to go about it. How you do that? That's you know, that's you know, a thousand different ways. I think if people have that they want to do it. Um, I go back to the idea of terraforming Mars and you know making Mars an Earth-like planet. Yeah, we're not doing a really good job here. You know. <laughs> I'm serious. We're, you know, I, yeah. I debated at yeah. Oxford last November, and they, my point was, you know, our future lies in space. I said, what future is it? Is it the future of life on Earth, or is the future of Earth uh, as a planetary species, you know, going someplace into the solar system? Mm-hmm. Well, the solar system's a vast thing. The universe is vast. Their closest planet's, what, 4.3 light years away? Something like that? Yeah. Um, Proxima Centauri, somewhere out there. You right. know, if, if the Voyager, which was launched in 1976, at, you know, what, 30-some-odd thousand miles an hour, if it was going in that direction, it would take 70,000 years to get there. That's, that's, you know, we're not going to go there. You know, the closest place we're going to go is maybe Mars. We're not going to go anywhere else in the solar system, you know, in our lifetime. I, I don't see it. Humans. Um, yeah. But once again, if we're going to go to Mars, why are we going? Uh, what's, the, what's the rationale to expend the money to get there? Oh, we're going to go and make it a second Earth. Well, you know, if we don't take care of our own Earth here, we're not going to be here to go there. Right. Um, Ted Cruz was chastising Charlie Bolden, NASA administrator, Marine, you know, Marine general, four-time shuttle astronaut, NASA administrator, great guy. Mm-hmm. And, and Ted Cruz said that NASA is spending too much time looking back at the Earth and not looking out into the solar system where they, where they need to go. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're wrong. You need to look out there and not back here. And Charlie, bless his heart, said, well, Senator, with all due respect, if the uh, launch pad's underwater, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this idea is that, you know, can we take care of our own planet? and do what we need to do the right thing here before we go someplace else. Because we can't solve our own problems here. We have no business going someplace else to do it. For as fantastical as it, it is, yeah. you know, if, if we can't get along down here, can't work as a, can't work as a team down here, you know, as a cooperative effort, you know, we can't go to the moon and one side of us mine the moon, other side mine the other, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and carry our, our difficulties and our differences to someplace else. Um, I think, I, I made this point that, I think the one person that got it right early on was Gene Roddenberry. For all mm-hmm. you know, all of Gene Roddenberry's eccentricities mm-hmm. is that if you look if you look at the flight deck of the Starship Enterprise, you see multiple ethnicities, you see people with different physical abilities, you see people with uh, you know they're speaking different languages, all mm-hmm. coming together for you know to solve a problem. I mean, we were doing this in the '60s, yeah, and uh, and that was neat. I mean, why can't we do that now? We're doing it on the space station, which is great. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you know, with all the other politics that play outside of that, affects doing that as a, as a uh, as a whole Earth system. I think we need to. I personally, we need to be able to solve that before we go off and 
and carry our differences into the into the solar system. I'd go if they'd let me, you know. <laughs> but just yeah. the fact that you're riding the rocket, but uh, you know, we we've got to we we should solve our problems here. What's what's going on right here right now? Yeah. Um, and expend our effort doing that. I think the key word there is teamwork or team. Mm-hmm. You know, working together. Um, yeah. Because it's such a hostile environment, you know, that's that's how you survive, by depending on each other. Yeah. Well, look what's going on in the United States right now. I mean, oh. now, besides, without the pandemic, you look at what's going on with the with the protests and now these riots and looting and everything, we're having a real hard time getting along in our own country. Yeah. You know, we don't have a, I won't get the politics of it, but, you know, it takes leadership. It takes somebody with a common vision to be able to lead people to, to solve problems. I think John Kennedy, you know, saw a problem. That was a space race with the Russians, a technical issue. He put it in terms that that this country could could look up to as a as a solution of solving a solving a technical problem. He didn't say we're going to beat the Russians. He said we have this goal. This goal is to do this because it's hard and we need to be able to solve the problem. And we did, and we carried it through three three different administrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took it took that type of vision, type of leadership, for whatever reason. He was able to put in something that people, you know, work the problem together. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, unfortunately, I don't see that right now. Um, yeah. there's, there's too much animosity and too much division um, because it's not being, not being led. You know, you can yeah. toss the goal out there of going to the moon in 2024. Well, it sounds nice, but mm-hmm. you need to get, you know, you need to get people behind it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't see that happen right now. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's I'm left with a soap. I, just silence. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, so where can people find you on the web? Oh boy, uh, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> you know, okay. I got I got a professional uh, uh, um, Commander John B. Harrington Facebook page. I got a personal page too, John B. Harrington. Um, I don't have a website or anything. I haven't I haven't gone down that path. Mm-hmm. I don't. You know, I I'm very fortunate that I get an opportunity through word of mouth to be able to go speak to students and to speak to different organizations. I work for my tribe in Oklahoma on their behalf. Um, I work with students. Um, I was, you know, I got my PhD. My wife and I were working, you know, on the idea of motivating kids, and she was an um, English professor and a writer, and uh, unfortunately she passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you kind of look at what we're doing together, what can I do on my own now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of looking at what she, what she wanted to do. And, uh, you know, so, you know, life, life tosses, you know, interesting things that challenge you. And, yeah. Uh, how do you over? How do you overcome them? Um, yeah. You know, take a, take it one step at a time. I may do a website at some point in time, but mm-hmm. um, I have Instagram. I have all that stuff, but I just I don't I don't tweet. I think I've sent two tweets in my entire professional career. <laughs> <laughs> no apologies necessary. Yeah. Do you know? Have yeah? Uh, you know, there's the 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 small cubes. What are they called? The mini the small satellite cube Pico, satellite. PicoSats. Yeah. PicoSats. We we know? launched one actually on my mission. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we launched out of the out of the uh, starboard side of the payload bay, a little teeny bread box. Uh, it was ejected out on, on the springs, and we undocked from space station. Mm-hmm. Within 45 minutes of, of doing the, the, the separation burn from space station, we had to set up cameras and record kicking out this little satellite over this point in the Earth where they could actually track it. Mm-hmm. And that was the, that, honestly, that was the hardest part of the mission was getting those cameras set up <laughs> to track this thing and getting the shots with the Nikon and with the payload bay cameras and and, uh, and kicking it out at the exact point in time we were supposed to. And I'll tell you, that was awesome. And that was the neatest shot, that little little picosats on a tether uh, that separated. Um, the idea was that, you know, you could lo- launch these 
these satellites off of a, another satellite. You could fly around and you could document any damage to the satellite. The idea was it was a autonomous vehicle that could fly around and, and uh, inspect something, you inspect the space station, inspect the GPS satellite. That was the idea behind it. I don't know where it's carried on from there, but that was fun. Huh. But so I know that some universities now are, you know, they've launched some. I know it's that they're cheap, but they're not. They're still expensive. You know, they still it still costs money. Um, yeah. I'm curious if any Native American um, colleges have have done anything like that. Do you know of anything? I know I've worked with some students doing uh, some rocket launches. You know, we, we do a thing out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, First Nations launch mm-hmm. every year. A bunch of a uh, bunch of colleges get together and well, they compete with uh, Yale and Harvard and Princeton and these Ivy Leagues, and they go out and they, they build these you know these incredible rockets. Uh, you know, seven feet long, and we, I went out a couple of years ago and watched them fly those things. That was fabulous. Watching the, you know, they put accelerometers on it, they have GPS, they have, they have GoPros, um, the telemetry, and they and really need to watch kids. They get excited, they're working as a team, uh, you know, they're loud, it's fun to watch the rockets fly. It's kind of fun to watch them come down without a parachute, too, that happened. Had, oh, yeah. Had a, scre- had a screaming lawn dart land about 50 feet from us. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty incredible. It could have gotten hurt. Um, but it didn't didn't stage properly, and the parachute didn't come out. So, but but tr- different colleges that are actually working um, and flying satellites, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Okay, I was just curious. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any um, final thoughts or words? No, it's great. I mean, this launch of the day was fabulous to watch and watching Doug and Bob fly um, into space. That's neat. It's uh, back from the from uh, United States soil again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, hope to see more of it. Yeah, and they'll be back in, I think it said, six to 16 weeks. Yeah, my... I heard they're up for three months. I, th- I don't know if they're going to bring Chris Cassie back or not. I think they're going to come back, just the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they're going to be up for like three months. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, well, thank you for speaking with me. My, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Spacewalks Money Talks. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more fascinating information at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com, on YouTube under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Facebook under Spacewalks Money Talks, on Instagram under Spacewalks Money Talks, and on Twitter at SpacewalksMT. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you for listening.